Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to the Word. Daniel chapter 2. Today we're going to look at two kingdoms, one true king. You know, risk and reward, pros and cons and weighing those is often an approach we take or strategy we implement when we're trying to make decisions, right? But sometimes decisions get put on you where you can weigh the pros and the cons and the risk versus the reward all day long, but it doesn't really matter because it seems like the end is determined when the decision gets presented. Well, that's what we're looking at today in the life of Daniel. We're gonna work through the entire chapter two in this message, so I'll not have time to read every verse, but I will walk through the chapter in the message, and hopefully you'll be able to follow along, and and I'll point out what I believe are key in the text to be able to understand everything that is going on. Let me begin by reading, though, the first seven verses. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldean said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show you its interpretation. Let's pause there for now. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Chapter two of Daniel begins after the recent graduation of Daniel and his friends from what you might consider Babylon U. Babylon University, they have graduated, and now they are faced with one of their biggest tests, this challenge from the king. King Nebuchadnezzar has a bad night of sleep, and he woke troubled from his dream. And so he summoned what would be the council of all the wisdom of the world represented in front of him, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, each segment of wise men that appealed to a different aspect of nature or the supernatural to try and become an expert, if you would, in their field. And they come, stand ready to serve him and tell him his interpretation, except this time something's different. They've been in front of the king before. They know that this is the role they play in the kingdom, but today something is different. The king issues an unchangeable order that they have to tell him not only the interpretation, but they have to tell him the dream. 
They have to know what the dream was before they can interpret it. And if they can't, well, it it gets kind of serious very quickly. They'll be torn limb from limb and their homes will be destroyed. But if they do, they'll receive great reward, great gifts, and great honor in the kingdom. But they tell him, King, if you'll tell us the dream, then we will interpret it. That's how this works, you know. What do you think we are, God? And it angers the king. And the king responds to them that they are stalling for time. He accuses them that you've only spoken corrupt words and you've lied to me to try and win my favor. But now you have to know the dream and tell me the interpretation or what I have decreed will be true for you. Why? Because he began by saying this, my word is firm. My word is firm. Verse 11 tells us that they respond The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. No man on earth can meet the demand of the king. Only a God could do such a thing is what the wisdom collectively of the world tells the king. The question becomes, which God will satisfy the king, right? If only a God can do it, will there be one that will do it? From the very opening verse, tension immediately begins to build and rise quickly. First of all, within the king himself, but then throughout the whole kingdom because of the king's decree. And the tension that rises will very quickly drive the narrative to a terminal end almost immediately in the story. And the more the tension rises in the story, the more the story itself really begins to grind the conversation almost to a complete halt. You ever notice how that happens when you kind of lose your temper and, and, and tempers flare and the heat rises? The, the forward movement of, of constructiveness begins to cease, right? It doesn't keep going forward. Why? Because of the tension that fills the air and dominates And the king makes a demand with threats. I mean, he's a king. He rules the world. I will make this happen by the sheer force of my will and by the great reward of my hand. But the demand is so great, it just seems inconceivable to the collective wisdom of the world. So back and forth, the conversation goes with the tension rising and the king becoming more entrenched in his demand that all of his power and all of his wisdom of his kingdom has nothing to say in response to the tension that the dream has created in him. And all the others just grow more dismayed by the simple impossibility of the request until an impasse is reached where they tell the king that only a God could even dare to do such a thing. It's interesting, their words, though not intentional, are very insightful for us at this point. Something's happened to disrupt the king, and it's beyond the wisdom and the ability of all the kingdom resources to address it. When we come to verse 12, it says this in verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Well... Again, that rose quickly, right? I mean, basically, he said, you know what? If you can't answer my question, just kill them all then. 
kill them all. The, the tension reaches the boiling point where the king commands that all the wise men be destroyed. And his decree went out to kill all the wise men. And, and if you'll remember, the very school, the, the diploma that Daniel and them were getting were to become wise men. So while we don't see them involved in the first portion of this, we know that the decree to kill all of them would have included Daniel and his friends. And so when Daniel hears this, he goes to Ariok, the captain of the guard, who's got to carry out the decree, and he asks him, why is the decree of the king so urgent? And, and Ariok explains it to him, and Daniel went immediately, it says, and he made an appointment to appear before the king to show the interpretation. I mean, is this just youthful arrogance? Youthful hopeless or hopeness, you know, against hope? But here's what we understand. At the end of chapter one, we learned that, that God gave Daniel a gift. And that gift, particularly for Daniel, was to understand visions and dreams. That's what verse 17 of chapter one tells us. So while we know that Daniel did not know the dream or its interpretation, what he just told the King Nebuchadnezzar he was going to do, he did not know that. What he did know was that there was an awareness in him of a gift that God had given to him and even more importantly, a faith to serve God with that gifting. I believe that's what we see here early on in the story. And I mean, after all, if you're going to die anyway, why not give it one last shot, right? I mean, let's give it a try anyway. Verse 17 through 23 tells us that immediately upon getting on the king's docket and being able to appear before him, Daniel left there and then he realized what he had done. Oh no. I don't think he got nervous, but he did go to his friends, it tells us. And he said to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he made the matter known and he said, plead with the Lord for his mercy upon us because we're in this as well. And it tells us that they prayed and they sought the Lord concerning this mystery so that they would not be destroyed. And what happens that night? Verse 19, while Daniel and his companions are praying, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And it tells us, then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Verses 20 through 23 record that blessing. You see, friends, that night the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Here's what we find out about God from the very beginning. He was already ready to act. He was waiting on his people to seek him and so that he could show them his power, might, and wisdom. And when he reveals in a vision of the night to Daniel what he is to say to the king, Daniel responds to that vision by blessing the Lord. He begins with praise in verses 20 through 22. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. And then after his praise, he moves to thanksgiving. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you for you have made known to us the king's 
matter. Hear me, friends. This hard situation is over. You see that? It's over. It's done. Why? Because God has addressed it. Now, they're still going to have to carry it out. But it's over. Because God has spoken and Daniel is convinced he knows that God has addressed what needs to be addressed. And he goes into Arioch after this to tell him, Arioch, I am ready to share the dream and the interpretation with the king. You see, after he finishes worshiping the Lord, then and only then is Daniel ready to bear faithful witness to his king, to the worldly king. Verses 24 through 30 tell us that Arioch takes Daniel in before the king. And you, you can only imagine Arioch's a little, he's a little nervous about this because he's supposed to be out killing all of the wise men. And here he is reappearing with one of them. But if Daniel can really do what Daniel says he can do, Arioch's going to get some credit in all this as well. And so he takes Daniel in before the king and the king asks, do you know the dream? Can you interpret him? And how does Daniel begin? Before he gets immediately to the business at hand, he takes care of the real business that's going on and he recites to the king what his wise men have already said, but instead of ending in hopelessness, he brings hope into the middle of it. Watch this. No wise men, he says, can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Now, how did the wise men of the worldly kingdom end it? Only a God who's not made of flesh could tell you this. But they didn't know that God. And no God that they knew was one that would be able to do it. And what did Daniel say? I know one God. Here's the needle in the haystack that has parted the hay to present itself to Nebuchadnezzar. That's what Daniel's doing here. And he says this, he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days. The God I know, King, is speaking to you today. God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream that disturbs him by the mystery that it presents. And God gave Daniel a revelation to know and to interpret the king's dream. Why? Because he's directing all attention to himself. Daniel makes sure that he honors God for the answer before he answers the king's inquiry. Verses 31 through 35, Daniel recites the dream to the king. The king sees an image and it is an image that is mighty and overwhelmingly impressive in its brightness. It is adorned with the metals of greatest value in the world from head all the way to the toe, those of great value, those of great glory, but also those of great strength and might and, and the feet, they're mixed with clay. But then while watching it tells us in verse 34, it says a stone that is unhewn, uncut by no human hand, struck the image in its feet and takes the whole thing out. It's like bowling a strike. All the pins fell when this stone unhewn hit. And all the great metals, as they fell to the ground from being hit, it says that they broke into pieces, they became like chaff and they were all carried away by the wind none of them left any trace after it was gone the only thing that remained it tells us 
is the unhewn stone that struck the image and it became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. Verse 36 says, this was the dream. Then Daniel says, now we will tell the king its interpretation. Daniel immediately interprets the dream and he begins by telling Nebuchadnezzar that God is the one who has given you the power, the kingdom, the might, and he is the one who has established you to rule over all creation. And King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold on the image that you saw. I don't wanna butter you up too much, King Nebuchadnezzar, but you are the shining glory on top of the kingdoms of this world. Had to make him feel good for a moment until Daniel said, but another kingdom will arise that will overtake you. And then another, and then another, and each of these kingdoms will be stronger and will conquer the previous. And the last kingdom that conquers will be a kingdom that is divided and will crumble because of the division. Verse 43 tells us that. You saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. In those days, he goes on to say, this God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and he will be the one who rules, verse 43 and 45. His kingdom will break into pieces all other kingdoms and bring all of those kingdoms to an end and they will be whisked away by the wind as if they had never been. And he will stand forever, an unhewn stone as you saw in your dream. You see, a great God has revealed the king's dream, Daniel says to him. And look at the end of verse 45. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is what? Certain. And its interpretation, sure. Here, the firm word of the king was not able to produce the dream nor its interpretation. But the certain and sure word of God has revealed all mysteries. Friends, at this, you can only wonder that King Nebuchadnezzar was exalted and, and really excited when he found out he was the gold head, but then he was also destroyed when he found out he would be overthrown. As a matter of fact, instead of just remaining angry, all of his anger and angst and, and tension had subsided because at verse 46, it tells us King Nebuchadnezzar was so overwhelmed by Daniel's wisdom in not only telling the mystery, but interpreting the mystery that it pricked his heart. He fell down and he began to pay homage to Daniel and to his God. And it says that the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of lords and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king. He appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But it says of Daniel, he remained at the king's court. What a powerful ending, friends, to a story that began with turmoil and tension and angst and anxiety and unknown and, and overwhelming darkness of, of what in the world did this mean and here we see the ending of the story, one of peace and one of blessing. 
It's insightful for us, I believe, in our day and time where we live in a culture that celebrates rage and immediately things go from zero to 100 uh, uh, in an instant. Why? Because we celebrate the rage more than we do the resolution. But God is a God of peace. He's a God of blessing. He's the God that brings wisdom to mystery and he reveals all things And when we think about Daniel and his friends in this story, we cannot help but be reminded of the words in James' letter to the church in chapter 4, verse 10, where he tells them, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Peter says the first thing in his first letter, chapter 5 and verse 6, he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Hundreds of years later, this same strategy of trusting the Lord and humbling oneself before the Lord is the best counsel and the wisdom they give for James and Peter who lived in the first century where under Roman rule, Christians would be killed, executed, and horrifically suffered just for the sake of of the name of Christ. To be known as a Christian was to have a death sentence put over your head and they would be killed for that. What did he say? But he said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. I can hope that as we find ourselves in an environment hostile, increasingly so to our faith in Jesus today, we will take the story of Daniel to heart and the counsel of James and Peter and the whole of God's word to remember this, faithfulness to Jesus always matters. There is never a time when being faithful to Jesus should be in question because of who he is. It always matters. It matters in the little things that seem inconsiderable. It matters in the big things that seem overwhelming. Humble yourself to him. Jesus will take care of you. You see, friends, in the world, faithfulness always brings one to a point of crisis where we are faced with this decision, who will you trust and who will you serve? And I believe we can effectively say, just as we see here with Nebuchadnezzar, the world is always going to seem to offer better riches, better promise, in the immediacy of answering the issues. But friends, Christ followers watch and stand ready to serve the Lord. That's why today I want you to walk away with this understanding deepening in your heart. Jesus is the King of Kings who came to the earth as the perfect wisdom and power from God so that all who believe in him would live in his eternal kingdom. You see, the second chapter of Daniel is a record of kingdoms. Kingdoms that rise and kingdoms that fall. And one who will come that will never pass away. And we see this by the contrasts of kingdoms that we find in this chapter. Consider the contrast of the two kingdoms that reveal one, Jesus is king of kings and worthy of our faith. And the other, the kingdom of this world that will pass away. The contrast of kingdoms begins with two dreams. Two dreams begin. The dream of Nebuchadnezzar that God gave to him that was his undoing. And the night of the, uh, the vision of the night that was given to Daniel that was his unveiling. The revelation that God gave to Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar's dream visits him unaware. Why? He doesn't have a care 
aren't a concern in the world. He has established his kingdom by the greatest power, the greatest might, the greatest glory, and the greatest wisdom in all the world. And nobody could argue with that. But a little dream leaves him completely unnerved and undone, such that he would look at the kingdom of the world and be ready to destroy them all if they can't answer his mystery. He was disturbed by the mystery of his dream. And so the ruler of the world summoned all of the collective wisdom, the collective power and the collective might of the whole world. And he says this, my word is firm. Answer this and you will receive great riches, honor and glory. Fail to answer it and you will be destroyed, you and your whole household. The collection of worldly wisdom listened to the king and it didn't really matter how firm his word was. Why? Because they didn't have any idea what he was talking about. You can, no, no person can do this. Are you kidding me? What you're asking is impossible. This cannot be done by man. Only a, only a God not made of flesh could do what you're wanting us to do. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar's dream presents a mystery that exposes what is impossible with man, but not what is impossible with God. And no matter how many riches he promises, no matter how much fame or glory, it cannot come because the wisdom and the power of men cannot produce it. You see, against a hopeless situation, that's what Daniel was facing. Something that the collective wisdom of the whole world at that time said, this is impossible. It's almost like there was no hope to be found. The situation was completely hopeless and you might say helpless absent of Daniel. Reminds me of Romans chapter four where it tells us in verse 18 that Abraham against all hope believed God. What he believing for? A hundred year old man with a 90 year old wife had been promised that they would have a child. They never had a child before. Childbearing years were so far in the rearview mirror they couldn't even be seen anymore. But God said you will and against all hope in worldly terms the Bible says Abraham believed. He just trusted. That's what Daniel did. That the collective wisdom of the world said, this is absolutely crazy. And Daniel said, but wait, there's more. Daniel hears and he summons his friends to seek God's mercy. While seeking the Lord, he receives a vision in the night from God that reveals the mystery. And he responds with the worship and the, of praise and thanksgiving. You see, the revelation comes to the one who trusts, who seeks the Lord for those who seek him, find him when they seek him with all their heart. One whose hope rests in the Lord, knowing that the Lord himself hears the prayers of those who are seeking him and believes the living God who is the God who speaks. You see, the revelation not only reveals the dream of worldly kingdoms that rise and fall, but it also reveals of a rock unhewn by human hand that strikes those worldly kingdoms so that they all fall but also that that kingdom would remain and it would cover the whole earth. And do you know how this revelation ends? With a word from God that is certain 
and sure. There's your book in, friends. We started with the firm word, word of the world, but we end with a certain and sure word from God. That's a contrast that we cannot fully fathom and understand. You see, there, there were no other gods that could speak. Just think about the culture for a moment and the, the plethora of religions. In, in that day and time, Babylon was known for its many religious participations of every gross kind and of every indulgence imaginable, just like the world offers today. There was no God that they would dismiss, bring them all, and in case a God is hiding behind the bush over there, let's hope we can get a blessing from that God too. We'll throw a little bit of worship at him as well but none of those gods could speak when the mystery was made known none of them knew why because they're dead idols they're false gods they are not what they claim they are not what people have said about them they cannot do what the living God alone can do whose word is certain and sure you see a snapshot reveals why it is that worldly kingdoms fall and heavenly kingdom stands Worldly kingdoms are rooted in power and might that constantly wars for dominance to rule one another and with one overthrowing another to be enthroned. Fear and dominance drive each cultural economy and each in its own unique way. If you study the Babylon, uh, Babylonian Empire and then the Medo-Persian Empire and ultimately what most believe to be the Roman Empire that would rise at last, the iron and the clay mixed, you see that each one of them exercised fear and dominance over the whole world in its own unique way. And each one held prominence and power, uh, uh, the promise of riches to those who would serve the king well but worldly kingdoms don't last friends it doesn't matter how powerful they become it doesn't matter how rich they ascend to there's always another stronger and mightier and wiser that rises to conquer so last week I was reading an article about Caitlin Clark man I'm impressed with her she can shoot lights out and she broke the NCAA women's basketball record for most points she didn't break it she shattered it like it wasn't even there she shot she barely got across half court when she launched the three and somebody said why did you shoot that shot and she said you didn't think I was going to break the record with an easy shot did you and I went oh I like you even more a little smack talk to 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 bring it home scored 49 points in that game that's amazing, friends. It's, it's amazing how, how, how she brought that. But they interviewed Kelsey Plum, the former record holder, and said, are you okay with her breaking your record? And she said, oh yeah, records were meant to be broken. Worldly kingdoms rise and fall. Why? Because there's always another smarter, wiser, stronger, mightier, more powerful that comes and conquers. And even when the strongest is enthroned, it tells us it is undone by its own divisions from within. Look at verse 43. They saw the iron mixed with soft clay. This is in the interpretation. So they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. Let me tell you about the undoing of the mightiest of world empowers. They were undone 
Because literally the text says, the language says, they were mixed from the seed of men. See, that word for marriage there is not just the typical Hebrew word for marriage in the sense of talking about the union between man and woman, but it's referring to humanity there and the mixing of a much deeper reality, the seed of men. Do you know what the seed of men is? It's the seed of sin. All are unrighteous. All do not know God. By the collective wisdom of all wise men and the rule of power and might, death is certain because the king's demand is impossible. Why? Because of sin. Friends, the sin of man that leads to death is the undoing of the kingdoms of this world. Hear me, I'm not just trying to offer a religious answer. I want you to understand what God is saying as is the ultimate end for every kingdom of the world. Immorality in its many varied and plethora of manifestations is always, always, idolatry manifested. Immorality is always a manifestation of idolatry, worshiping false gods in false ways that will pass because they will not last. The world remains in this same condemned mixture today, friends. We're facing some of the same kinds of overthrows that we never thought possible. And, and, and it's confounding us. Most recently, the world's intelligence and wisdom manifest in what we're coming to know as AI, artificial intelligence. Oh no, oh no, what are we gonna do? And we've got all these people who are self-proclaimed experts, thank you, thank you very much, who are pondering and postulating about what it is that this cumulative intelligence produced by combined data of humanity, what will it produce to see how it will remake the world by its wisdom? And on one end, you have people who are celebrating it and indulging it. They're so excited about it. They've already conceived in their heart how they can use it to overthrow the standing regime of the world and put themselves on top. Others are fearful of it. They're warning us of it. What could it be? What shall it be? Let me ask you something based on this understanding. The only question that we need to be concerned about in the midst of it is this. Where's Jesus? And I'm gonna tell you where Jesus is even in the midst of AI. He's at the same place he was when Daniel was faced with certain death. He's on his throne. He's not had so much as a shudder of angst in him about AI. Why? Because even as we see in Daniel 2, the collective wisdom, power, might, glory of the world will never compete with the only living God who speaks. It is his word that is certain and sure. And it doesn't matter how firm that the world's kingdom's words become, they will never reach to God's word and his truth. Not even the cumulative wisdom of the world rattles God. Jesus Christ stands, friend, knowing his wisdom will endure because he is the living and eternal word of God that has gone forth into the world that is both certain and sure. Hear me, friends. 
Our hope against hope is this, that there is only one true king. It doesn't matter what these puppets get on TV and the internet say about themselves and their kingdoms. There's only one true king and he already knows the end of AI. Why? Because he decreed the end from the beginning. Two words that we need to understand in our own mind, but he has no limitations by. In the worldly kingdom, the heavenly kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And instead of men who conquer and war to rise to power and to rule by their wisdom and might trying to build their kingdom and become God-like, Jesus, who is God, came into the world to become a man and to bring the kingdom of God to all who would believe and receive eternal life that only he gives. And you see this man, Jesus Christ, who came is a man who was tempted in every way just as we are yet, hear me, yet he remained unmixed. He remain unmixed, unconquered and unstained from sin. That's why it tells us he was perfect in righteousness in every way. Though he knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 tells us he became sin for us so that he could die in our place, pay our sin debt. That is the ultimate death of every person outside of the glory of his name and give to us the righteousness that was his alone. That is the only way we make a way to be with God. And because of him, we have life with God because we are hidden in him, hidden in his death, hidden in his resurrection, certain that we died with him, absolutely sure that we too shall rise by faith in him. His kingdom is eternal. It will never pass away. Friends, how reassuring we have that Jesus even in Daniel is the stone unhewn by human hands that has come. And he is the one who will strike to destroy every human kingdom. He will become a great mountain and fill the whole earth with the glory of his eternal kingdoms. As the other prophets of the old say, as the waters cover the sea, so the glory of God will cover the face of the earth. You see, the worldly kingdom is a kingdom that's mixed, friends. Sin-stained in every way. Ever-changing, ruled by many. That's not to say it's not impressionable. That's not to say that when you look at it, it's kind of overwhelming in glory to, to, to begin with. It, it's got so much promise, but it's constantly moving towards its inevitable demise because it's temporary. It's temporary. But the heavenly kingdom, friends, it's fixed, not mixed fixed by the eternal one who rules all, increasing to cover the face of the whole earth. It shall never be destroyed, but it will break into pieces all the kingdoms of this world. Those who trust in the kings of this world will go as the worldly kingdoms go, away to their certain death, utterly destroyed forever. But those who trust in the king of kings, Jesus Christ, who has come from heaven, they will spend eternity with him in his kingdom. We sing of this in one of our songs, Ancient of Days. It says, though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains, that my God is the Ancient of Days. Though the dread of night overwhelms my soul, he is here with me. I am not alone. 
Oh, his love is sure and he knows my name, for my God is the ancient of days. None above him, none before him, all of time is in his hands. For his throne it shall remain and ever stand. All the power, all the glory, I will trust in his name. For my God is the ancient of days. Friends, we've been singing this glorious truth through the ages of Christianity. Handel's famous Messiah sings of Revelation eleven fifteen this same truth. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Don't fret, friends, of what today holds when the worldly kingdoms flares all of its wisdom, strength, power, and might. Jesus is the power and the wisdom of our eternal God. And so we agree with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23 to 25, when he says, we preach Christ crucified. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The kingdoms of this world are set up by men who make themselves into kings and use people to try to make themselves a god. But the kingdom of heaven is ruled by the living God who is king of kings and lord of all who came to earth and gave himself to save people from their sin. John 18, 36 reminds us Jesus is the king of a kingdom that is not of this world. Build your life on the kingdoms of this world with your hope and your trust and all the gold, the silver, the brass, the strength, the might, the wisdom that they can build or any system of power, wealth, or knowledge that they produce and you will pass away like chaff in the wind with them. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and you will inherit the eternal kingdom to rule with him. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. But there is one who will stand through them all. Jesus is the king of kings who came to earth as perfect wisdom and power from God so that all who believe in him would live in his eternal kingdom. Would you pray with me?